This is the account of, we, we say, Jesus cleansing the temple. You'll see what that means after I read it from John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. It was a dose of pure intimidation, really. The Lincoln High School basketball team was headed to the town high school school and gymnasium to play town in the conference championship. And as Lincoln and the team bus made their way to the town high school parking lot, it was just pure intimidation. The paw prints of the town high school tigers were painted on the driveway as Lincoln entered the parking lot. They made it out of the bus and entered the, the building, the gymnasium, and a big banner above the doors that they had to walk under said, this is tiger territory. Got in the locker room, they changed amidst all the tiger posters and more paw prints and claw posters. Made it into the gym. And the home crowd in the Tiger gym wasn't all that friendly to the visiting Lincoln High School players. As a matter of fact, when the Lincoln players entered the gym, the entire gym, with the exception of a few Lincoln fans, started shouting and cheering and, and trash talking. Whose house? Our house. Whose house? Our house. That, that's not nice. I mean, didn't the Lincoln team know that it was the town high school gymnasium? I mean, you wouldn't welcome someone to your house like that, would you? You know, open the door, greet your mother-in-law with a hug, say, hey, hi, Mom, whose house? My house! It's, It's not information. It's intimidation. It's meant to say, you're in someone else's territory. This is our turf, not your turf. We own this place, and we're going to own you. That is the home court advantage. 
And that is what Jesus thought he had when he entered the temple courts. The entire temple, the courts included, were, were built for him. To worship him. To honor him. And he walked into the temple courts, which he thought was his own home turf, his own territory, and he heard not cheering for him, but cheering for the other team. Trash-talking, almost. And so Jesus has to say, whose house? God's house. Not, I, I would say not so much to win against them as if the, the people there are his enemy. They're not. But more so to, to win them over. To say, yes, there's a bit of an intimidation factor here, and Jesus is going to show them in a second what that means. Yes, I want your attention, and yes, I want you to understand that this is my house. This is God's house. This is not your house. And when you do, then you'll be on the right team. Then you'll be cheering for me. Then I will be your Savior. The, the festival of the Passover... Uh, increased the number of people in Jerusalem, that Jewish Passover festival, from, uh, from 10,000s or so, maybe more, to 2.5 million pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, making their way from all over the land, all of them coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, nothing even close to uh, ACL here or, right, just there's a lot going on. And so you had pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, and they knew that they would need to offer animal sacrifices at, at the Passover festival in the temple courts. Because some of them were coming from such a distance, it became a convenience that in the temple courts, the locals would sell them animals that they could use for sacrifices. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, doves, lambs, animals that they could use for sacrifices. Also, the pilgrims coming for the Passover would pay their temple tax. And they'd want to pay it in a local currency, but some of them had foreign currency, and so they needed money exchangers in order to exchange their foreign currency for local currency so they could pay the, pay the temple tax. Nothing wrong with that. And as a matter of fact, this was such a norm that, that booths, the money changers and uh, the people selling animals actually set up booths as vendors outside the city weeks before the Passover began so that people could plan ahead of time and could bring their animals with them, could have the right currency. Of course, then, the entrepreneurs in the city, maybe not all of them in it for the consumer, but for themselves, thought, now here's an opportunity. There's going to be people at the temple who need to pay the temple tax, and they're already there in the temple courts, and they don't have the right currency. And there's going to be people who need to offer sacrifices, and they don't have any sacrifices. And the price gouging began. And the heckling, and the hackling, and I'll, I'll take a lamb, but I want it for the price of a dove. And then all of a sudden you had this, what Jesus said, you've turned it into a market. Uh, now, Here's what it says. Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. 
this has been used in a lot of ways, and I don't know if all of them are appropriate, and there are even ways that, as a pastor, I was tempted to use this to say, this is what church should look like. And uh, I wrestled with it all week, and I'm going to say it this way. Money is not the issue for Jesus. It's not. Uh, he once did a miracle and, and, and uh, created a coin in a fish's mouth and told his disciples to take the coin out. He said, use that to pay the temple tax. And he once commended a widow for her offering to the temple. Money is not the issue for Jesus at all. And business practices, that running the church like a business, that's not Jesus' issue here either. Business practices are not the problem. In the Old Testament, the Lord God told Moses in Exodus chapter 18 to engage in some good, healthy business practices about delegating responsibility to others so it wasn't all overwhelming him. And in the early church, in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles uh, were involved in the administration of distributing food to widows, and they created a system, a business plan, so to speak. And even the apostle Paul appointed elders and deacons. There was the early church was organized and used business practices. That's not the problem here at all. And sacrifices aren't the problem either. They're not the problem. Jesus isn't upset that there are sacrifices. God asked them in the Old Testament to bring sacrifices. And in the New Testament, it talks about us as Christians, New Testament Christians, being living sacrifices. It uses that term throughout Scripture. Well, that wasn't the problem. And organized religion was not the problem either. The fact that it was both organized and both religion. Jesus doesn't hate organized religion. That, that's not the issue. I mean, Jesus once said, where two or three come together in my name, he's talking about Christians, where two or three Christians come together in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is like, hey, I'm, I'm into organized religion. Let's organize. Two or three. Let's get together. I'm with you. My, my name is there. I, let's huddle. Come on. Come on, church. Jesus loves organized religion. Jesus loves church. He illustrates the church in the New Testament, calling it the body of Christ. That's quite a compliment for an organization, and that's ours. so much what they're doing as what they're not doing in the temple on this day, that's the issue for Jesus. And what they're not doing is entering the temple and visiting the temple and being part of the church as, as guests of God, as followers of Jesus. They're not, they're not there because it's God's house, and they're visiting and saying, thank you, God, for the privilege of coming to your house. They're not doing that. Jesus, they're, 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 they're playing owners. That's the bottom line. These people are saying, we're the owners of this place. The temple is all ours. We can do whatever we want. We can, uh, we can make it like a market. We can gouge people for, uh, in prices for animals. We can do it our way. And Jesus says, that's, that's the problem. 
You're coming here not as guests, but as owners. You turn my father's house into a market. See that? You're doing something that you don't have the right to do. And Jesus basically says you're a bunch of entitled consumers. And this is not yours to make a mess with the way that you're doing it. Making a mess. Um, I remember a few things from high school, um, the biggest of which is I met my wife there. Then there's a bunch of little things after that. Uh, one of the little things is um, I treasure the memories of a, of a high school basketball and football coach that I really admired and who, um, who propelled and kind of funneled me toward the pastoral ministry. And, uh, and he was a good coach. He was a good Christian man and a good coach, too. And uh, he, had, he had principles and, and uh, beliefs, and attitude was very big for him. Um, if you had a good attitude, that was almost more, more than talent, um, which allowed me to survive in the athletic world in high school. That's another story. Uh, but one of the things that he taught us about attitude, I remember this phrase. It, it, and he posted it in our own locker room, and it was part of our team values, and we practiced it. Uh, and talked about it until it was just part of our culture, and that was this. When you go to a visiting team's locker room, the saying was this, we always leave it cleaner than it was when we came. We always leave it cleaner than it was when we came. And if it was almost spotless when we arrived, which was rare for a high school locker room, but if it was, we would find a way to make it even spotlesser. Uh, to clean up after ourselves, obviously, right? And that was the point. We don't just take care of ourselves, but we take care of this. It's a privilege for you to be here. You are not entitled consumers walking into the visiting team's locker room and going to leave it a mess. That, that was just drilled into us, and it became part of our culture. And uh, there are a lot of benefits to that. One of them is that schools would literally write letters to our school and say, of all the teams that we play, yours is the most respectful and the most well-mannered, and, and praise God for being good witnesses. But it taught me something else, that I am not an entitled consumer, that I don't, I don't have the right when I visit, when I'm a guest, to, to do in that locker room what I want to do. Um, this dynamic is also very true of grandparents. I became one recently, so I'm, now I'm feeling this, right? Grandparents, you go to your kid's home, and you watch how they raise their kids, and you say, what are you doing? That's not the way to raise children. You're supposed to do it the way I did it, uh, right? And there's this, wow, I, I need to tell you how to take care of your plants, how to raise your pets, how to raise your children, because I've been through it, and obviously I succeeded with you, and so you should do this, right? There's that, I'm a guest in your home, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how to parent your children. I'm the grandparent. I'm not an entitled consumer. All right, well, now this comes into play in the church setting, that we easily become entitled consumers when we, when we see the church not as God's house, but we see it as my house. I can come and go when I want. I can decorate it however I want. I can decide who I want to welcome in and who I want to keep out. 
That's entitlement, and those, it's not my house. Whose house? God's house. Whose house? Yeah, so see, the problem isn't organized religion. The problem is here. How do I see my relationship with God's house? How do I, what do I go there for? What do I think I'm going to get out of it? And then I see myself as an owner and not a guest. Then it's my house. And Jesus says, stop turning my father's house into. Now, the problem is an organized religion, uh, but it is a challenge. Because a church, one of the best ways I would guess I would describe the church, especially to people who say, I don't like organized religion, is to say this. You know, the church isn't at its heart a business. We, we use best practices. We make business plans as we're thinking about building a school, and we, make, we use budgets, and right? We, we, we collect offerings to pay the bills. We use business practices, but we're not a business. We're about people and people's souls. I would explain it this way and say, we're, we're a hospital of sinners. We seek to create a place where people who are hurting, who need peace that the world cannot give, who are, who are stressed out and need rest and relief in, in ways that time management can't provide, who, who feel too much guilt and need relief from Jesus, who need God's hope and His love. This is a hospital of sinners where we come for spiritual healing to recover and for relief and we have a hospital of sinners who then are their own doctors, so to speak. Not in a bad way, but right, we're, we're the ones. It's, we have sinners organizing the church to help other sinners, and so we have sinners helping sinners. We have sinners making decisions, church decisions, and we have sinners hand-in-hand hand with other sinners and we're just not always going to get it right. And we're going to hurt each other. And we're going to hurt our God because that's, that's why we're here. We're sinners. We're not perfect. We're not righteous. If you're perfect, you don't need to come to church. Ah, <laughs> there's an issue. I just got a book called The Wounded Healer. The Wounded Healer. Healer. It's interesting because it made me think of my doctor. Um, I've, I've been to a doctor recently who I pictured as a, as a wounded healer because um, I turned 50 in 2017. And at age 50, when you see your doctor, he recommends that you go see a gastroenterologist for a special procedure that once you reach 50 years old, your gastroenterologist will perform once a year to make sure that you have colon health. What I liked is that my own doctor, who's a few years ahead of me, told me, 
Yeah, I just uh, went to see my gastroenterologist for the, for the first time this year. I'm looking at him like, dude, you just told me that when I reach age 50, I need to go see the you know, colon health doctor. And, and you didn't do that business until you know, four or five years later? He said, yeah, I, I kind of had this idea like, because I'm, I'm the doctor, I'm, I'm perfectly healthy. I don't, I don't need to. I'm, I'm fine. And then I realized I, I probably need that too. Uh, the wounded healer. We minister to each other and to others in the church as, as wounded healers. We're sinners in a hospital and we're the doctors. Here's the solution. None of us are ever going to be perfect. So we're all wounded healers. Disorganized relig- or organized religion is not the problem. It's the people in it. And, and how I can sin in it, and how I can see myself in an entitled way, the solution to all of that is not better organization, not bigger church, not more rules, not getting the, the, the right program or pastor in the right place at the right time. That's not the solution. All of that can help, but it's not the solution. The solution is the wounded healer. The man walking into the temple courts called Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine what it was like for him to hear the bleating of lambs and see the bleeding of lambs as their throats were cut and they were offered on the hot fires as a sacrifice? And wouldn't you think that Jesus, the one whom the Father sent to be the sacrificial offering for all of our sins of all time, whom the Bible calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would you think that Jesus just caught that sound a little more than all the others and thought, that's me. I am that sacrifice. I am the Lamb. And I'm walking right into a death on a cross, but I'm doing it because I love sinners and the sacrifice pays for their sins, pays the way. Um, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus is the wounded healer. By his wounds, we are healed. That love of Jesus, that zeal to walk into the temple and to know he would be the sacrifice soon enough, that's where that verse from, from Psalm 69 then says his, his disciples remember that verse, zeal for your house consumes me. Right? Jesus has this zeal. He walks right into it. Zeal for your house, Jesus says, consumes me. It takes me over. I can't do anything else. But love your house, God. But love your house, Father. Zeal for your house consumes me. And then in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the son over God's house. What, it's what the people weren't doing. They weren't attending as guests of the Father's house. They weren't worshiping the Lamb of God. But it's also what Jesus wasn't doing that saved them. Jesus wasn't bringing a band of, uh, you know, of, of tough disciples who could bear swords 
And, uh, and they would lop the heads off of anyone who was in making his father's house into a market. Jesus didn't call down legions of angels to come and zap all those who were making his father's house into a market. It, it's what Jesus wasn't. Jesus didn't turn around and walk away and said, that's it, I, that's it, I'm done. None of this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and zeal for his father's house meant he needed to make it that way for all those who didn't believe it. And the way that he would clean it up wasn't ultimately by turning over tables and making a whip out of cores. The way that he would clean it up would be becoming the wounded healer. And to say, zeal for your house consumes me. This is God's house, Jesus says, and I'm going to take care of it. There's nothing that these people can do to make it not my father's house anymore. This is my father's house, and I'm going to take care of it. So what does that mean for us today? Doesn't that give you greater confidence and hope and joy in the church as we see it today? Because it, whether it's our own congregation or the church at large, we can see the attendance going down and, and a struggle to be the church that we want to be. We can see it as a mess. We can say, what's going on with my church? Oop. It's not my church. Whose house? This group of people is Jesus' church. Jesus is the son over God's house. This group of people is God's church, God's house, my father's house. It's not Darren's church. It's not Bob's church. It's not, I mean, we call it holy word, but just to give it a name and an identity, but it's Jesus' church. I'm not going to destroy it. You're not going to destroy it. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He's not talking about holy word there. He's talking about himself and about his body. And he's saying, this is my father's house. He sent me to take care of it. There's nothing you can do to me, Jesus says, that will make me unable to take care of my church. Nothing. Even kill me. I will rise again. And my church will rise too. And there's nothing, Jesus says, that will ever destroy my church. You destroy, Jesus says, the temple. I raise it again. You make the church into a marketplace, Jesus says. It's still my father's house. We're not going to destroy it. Nothing can destroy it. Because it's God's house and it's God's son's house. Last point, everything that we can say about the church at large is true not just for a local congregation called Holy Word or other congregations. Because if the, the church is God's house, ultimately, we say in the creed, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. That's church with a capital C, and that's all believers everywhere. That church will never be destroyed, ever. And that church exists in other places besides church buildings. That church exists in your home. 
Got some home improvement slide up for the spring, for the summer, right? Maybe a little painting, maybe a little refurb, something. Make a, I, I need to make a fire pit. I got to talk to Richard about that. We've talked about that a few times, Richard, right? Um, I, I have mine mentally and on paper lined up. Maybe you have yours too. Maybe it's time to get out of that apartment lease, find a new place. Maybe uh, refinance a mortgage, right? There's, there's things to do on your project list. How about spiritual home improvement project list? Knowing that my house isn't my house. It's, it's God's house. And your home is God's house. Not just the church. Your home is God's house. Jesus brings his angels, and every night, he and his angels tuck your kids into bed. Jesus brings his forgiveness and his strength, and it's there that he hears your prayers, sometimes whispered, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, sometimes unknown. But he knows the desires of your heart and knows that you need him, and he's there. And you have all the projects lined up and all the to-do lists, and it might seem overwhelming, and you have relationships that demand too much of you, and Jesus says, this is my house. This is, in the sense of the church, not your house, but Jesus says, I got this. You try to destroy it, I'll raise it. You try to turn it into something that is not a, a market, it's my father's house. Your home is God's house. There, you have the home court advantage as much as here in our church. Um, I did a, some quick little research on home court advantage. I discovered something very interesting about the NBA, the National Basketball Association, that the home court advantage in the NBA is, is declining. In the mid-'70s, home court teams would win roughly 70% of the time. Recently, that's dipped to just above 50% of the time. And so they're all, everyone's looking at this going, what's happening? What's the difference? There's a number of interesting factors. One of them is this. The, uh, this factor says the sixth man isn't what it used to be. And then it shows a picture of fans in, in the around a gymnasium at an NBA game, and the fans doing this. And literally, they say, the, the noise level, the engagement, how many, how many plays get cheered for, how early people are there, how, they say the sixth man is not what it used to be, at least in the NBA and probably other sports. If this is God's house, and his son, Jesus, is over God's house. We have no reason to be disengaged in any way. In our homes, in our church, and we have every reason to say, whose house? Amen. Let's pray. This is your house, God. Our, our hearts are your house. Our homes are your house. Our church are your house. Thank you for inviting us as guests to be in it. We pray that when it comes to ownership, we might seek to own the right things, to own the mission that you have for us, to own the relationships that we 
that we've been given, the, the people whose paths we cross in this world, to own the opportunities that you put ahead of us and to own the cross that we carry in the name of Jesus. You, God, own the church. You, God, own our own homes. Bless us as we seek to be your worshipers and your followers and to bring others in as guests too. Amen.